Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. The whole idea of doing a podcast to like delve into this is just so absurd and stupid. <laughs> Tell me why it's stupid some more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the idea that I'm trying to vocalize this experience, like the very act of vocalizing it, it takes you away from it, right? It puts me back in monkey meat space. Mm. And that's where I am most of the time. Language is all about systematizing and categorizing and labeling, right? Assigning phonemes to the things in the world. There's a place prior to all that and trying to use vocalizations to describe that place is sort of inherently... It doesn't make sense. This is why this is so funny, the idea of like a podcast (laughs) about this. It's like... (laughs) (laughs) What are we doing? I know. (laughs) Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. There's an old political cartoon I keep pinned above my desk. It was published the day I was acquitted and released from prison. It depicts a cartoon version of me rushing out the gates of a walled labyrinth labeled the Italian legal system. It's in part what inspired the name for this podcast. During those years, I felt utterly lost. But I never felt so lost as to forget who I was, to lose my sense of self, even while millions of others tried to redefine me as a monster. But losing yourself in that way isn't necessarily bad. In fact, it can be illuminating, healing, and hilarious. Whatever place I was lost in that snowy day when I took 3.5 grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms, it was a place where the idea of making a podcast about the ineffable magic of the psychedelic experience felt so absurd and pointless. And yet, here we are, with the first episode of a seven-part series, The Fungus Effect in which we'll bring you interviews with a variety of experts on psychedelics and psilocybin mushrooms, from the neuroscience, to the politics of legalization, to the therapeutic potential, the indigenous history, the insights of mindfulness meditation, and even the evolution of mushrooms and our grand relationship with life on Earth. My own experience with mind-altering substances is very limited. I smoked some weed in college, and I drink wine, and that's about it. I, on the other hand, have sampled the panoply of mind alteration pretty broadly. From cannabis to cocaine to opioid painkillers to MDMA, LSD, and psilocybin. I've always been curious and have occasionally taken some unreasonable risks, both legally and psychologically. We make an odd pair in that regard. And it's been a challenge for me, and an opportunity to rewrite some negative associations when I've witnessed Chris ingest psychedelic drugs and get lost in a way I never have been. That helped demystify the idea of these drugs for me. It sapped them of fear. But equally impactful was Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which invited me and thousands of others to reconsider everything we knew about psychedelic drugs. That word, drug, is a charged and misleading word. For not all drugs are created equal. And in fact, most of us take drugs every day with the express intent of altering our consciousness. That's the subject of Michael Pollan's latest book, and he was kind enough to talk to us about it. What is the story that you're hoping to tell in This Is Your Mind on Plants? It's a story about an age-old relationship between humans and the plants and fungi that change consciousness. I've always been interested in the fact that we use plants, they're critical to us in many, many ways. And some of the ways are pretty obvious and uncontroversial. They nourish us. 
They clothe us. They give us pleasure, beauty. I mean, there are all these desires they gratify that are uncontroversial. But there's one that's kind of weird and unexpected, which is that all cultures that we've surveyed, with one exception, use some plant or fungi to change consciousness. Why would that be an adaptive thing for a species? It seems to me it's kind of risky. When you get high or get discombobulated by a plant drug, you're vulnerable to accident, predation. These things are poisonous in high doses, some of them. So I've always had this longstanding interest since back when I grew marijuana as a teenager that you could do this with plants. And I've always wanted to look at that relationship. In a book I did in 2001 called The Botany Desire, I did have a chapter on cannabis along with chapters on potatoes and tulips. And I'm very interested in the fact that the human relationship with plants is symbiotic. They're changing us and we're changing them. And so here was a chance to look at three molecules, psychoactives produced by plants, very different. There's kind of an upper, a downer, and an outer. Two of them are plants with which I'd had a very long-term relationship, poppies and coffee and tea. Mescaline was new to me. I was writing about that because I hadn't had any contact with it. So that's kind of what got me into it. And I like telling these stories about our relationship to plants. I like personifying other species to help us appreciate that we're not the only subjects in nature. <laughs> I have enormous respect for their power and wanted to explore that. These kinds of plants in particular have been termed entheogens, psychoactive substances that induce changes in consciousness with spiritual dimensions and which are often used in sacred contexts. In your book prior to this one, How to Change Your Mind, you focused on the realm of entheogens. But in this book, you broadened out to these other psychoactive plant-derived chemicals. Why does it feel important to put something like mescaline or other psychoactive psychedelic substances in context with things like caffeine? Well, it was deliberate, and I definitely wanted to have a very everyday legal substance in there so people would realize that when they use the word drug, what are they really talking about? I mean, most of us have a drug we're dependent on. We use every single day. This episode brought to you by coffee. Our default consciousness is very much the product of this plant. And we're all in this very deep and complex and unconscious relationship. When you tell people that they're using a drug every day, they're kind of surprised. So I think I'm trying to normalize the idea of that we do use plants to change consciousness. There are different ways to do it. There definitely are dysfunctional relationships people have with plant drugs without question. Addiction is real. I think it's more complicated than the drug war story of addiction would have us believe. But it's just part of human nature. That's why I think the decriminalized nature movement is so interesting. Here is this new movement. It really just popped up in the last year or two that doesn't use the word drug, as Amanda just did, uses the word entheogen or plant medicine and is normalizing or naturalizing our relationship to these plant medicines by suggesting they're just part of our relationship to nature. And how can a plant be criminal? What did a plant ever do to make itself criminal? <laughs> yeah. It's a way to break with drug war language without even alluding to it, simply by proposing a new word. And I think the word entheogen is a really interesting word. It's a very specific kind of psychedelic in that it has a spiritual dimension to it. And that's been used, of course, to replace psychedelics, which I'm very comfortable using. I'm kind of trying to rescue it from all the crust on it from the 60s. That crust on the word psychedelics was the result of the rapid embrace of these substances by youth in the 60s, without much knowledge of how to use them safely or for maximum benefit. With figures like Ken Kesey and Timothy Leary, the ex-Harvard psychologist, recklessly proselytizing for LSD, the conservative political backlash was probably inevitable. Richard Nixon declared Leary the most dangerous man in America. The 1970 Controlled Substances Act, which launched the drug war, classified psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin as Schedule I, alongside heroin and marijuana as highly dangerous and with no legitimate medical uses. And by the time we were going through elementary school, the D.A.R.E. program was telling us that all drugs were the same and that they were definitely dangerous. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. 
Any questions? I think I benefited even more so than my husband, Chris, here from reading How to Change Your Mind and Your Mind on Plants, because I had strongly internalized the Western mindset about mind alteration, how it was hedonistic and irresponsible. I really just had the dare not to do drugs really hammered into me from a young age. And then... When I went to prison, I lived alongside addicts who were at rock bottom. Are these heroin addicts or a variety of things? Oh, God, everything under the sun. (laughs) I've seen people smoke insane things. (laughs) Wow. I've seen the dark side of addiction, and I came out of prison thinking like, oh, my God, I'm just so scared of this stuff. I don't want anything to do with it. And your books really, really helped me dissipate all these negative associations that I had adopted, especially towards psychedelics, and sparked not just genuine curiosity, but actually this feeling of hope that psychedelics might actually be very key to healing of my own and other people's traumas. And I was wondering if that was one of your goals in writing about psychedelics the way that you have. Yeah, I shared a lot of your assumptions about psychedelics. When I started research on that book, I had really never used them except in a very mild way, some mushrooms when I was in my 20s. And I was terrified of them. Not for fear of addiction so much as for fear of going crazy or learning things about myself that would be traumatizing, you know, the kind of stuff that could come up. And every time I approach a psychedelic experience, I have a fair amount of anxiety because it is very unpredictable compared to other drugs. One of the legacies of the drug war is we put all these illicit drugs in the same basket. And they're really different. And hopefully, as the drug war ends, we'll be able to look at them each on their own terms. So, for example, the classic psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, DMT, they're not addictive. If you do that setup with the rats who can press a lever to administer drugs to their bloodstream, with LSD, they'll do it once and never again. It's just too disturbing to them. Whereas if you put in heroin or cocaine, they'll do it till they die. So that's an important thing to know, that these are not drugs of abuse in that sense. The other thing that really surprised me when I started figuring out the risk profile was that there's no lethal dose of those tryptamines. That's kind of remarkable because you've got a bunch of drugs in your medicine cabinet you bought over the counter that do have a lethal dose. And it's not that high. You know, 20 pills of Tylenol will kill you. So that was very surprising to learn, and that sets them apart from certain other drugs. Heroin, you know, does have a lethal dose. We see that around us all the time. So I think our ability to make these distinctions has been lost during the drug war. We have this schedule that the government gives us, and marijuana and psychedelics are in Schedule 1, and the opiates are in Schedule 2 or 3 because they have a medical use. And There's a lot more to know about a drug than that. And in a way, the legal status of a drug is one of the least interesting things about it. But that isn't to say its legal status isn't consequential. When Pollan initially wrote about opium in the late 90s, he had to be very careful about what he revealed. That's the way I like to write. I mean, I like to put myself in the story and and there's things you can learn when you do something that you just simply can't learn as a spectator. And so I've always done that, going back to my writing about food when I bought a steer and followed it through the food system. When it came to opium, that meant he felt the need to experience the process of cultivating and consuming it. And as a result, many pages of his initial essay were excised on the advice of lawyers. In the case of opium, I had written it in 1997 and published most of it. And two things had changed in the years since. One was I could freely restore the missing pages, which describe how you turn common poppies that you grow in your garden into a mild narcotic, either through tea or soaking in alcohol to make what was called laudanum in the 19th century. And because of the drug war and the risks of admitting that I was growing, I mean, you just cannot imagine how intense things were in the late 90s under the Clinton administration, by the way, and the penalties for messing around with drugs and the fact that the government was interested in gardeners growing opium and trying to stop this fad, a Seattleite named Jim Hogshire, 
had published a book called Opium for the Masses. And it was an underground press book, but they were really afraid that this was going to become this fad. So that was one change that history allowed me to deal with and put back the missing pages and took some effort to find them. The other was realizing that what I thought was the story then and what the government thought was the story then, which is to say gardeners growing poppies and making a mild narcotic from it, we missed the story entirely. And that was that Purdue Pharma was just beginning to market Oxycontin, a perfectly legal opiate that led to more than 500,000 deaths. If you need a better illustration of what a joke the drug war was, while the DEA was going after small timers like Jim Hogshire, who was busted for dried poppies that he bought in a Seattle florist shop, above ground, you had this company that was essentially addicting millions of people. The biggest public health problem related to drugs since the drug war began in 1970 has been the opioid crisis. And that crisis began in most cases with prescription opiates. Yes, people eventually go underground and they have to find heroin or fentanyl on the street, but most of those addicts begin with legal opiates. We're starting to gain some perspective because the drug war, I think, is losing its gas. But I can totally understand the attitudes you brought, and I think that they're very common and that there is work to be done, I think, destigmatizing, you know, which can go overboard too. I mean, we had a lot of careless use of psychedelics. One of the most important things to understand about them is when psychedelics arrived in our society in the West, beginning in the 50s and 60s, they didn't have an instruction manual. We didn't really pay attention to the indigenous use, which would have given us some guidance, but that's how arrogant we are, that the idea we could learn anything from a bunch of Mazatec Indians or Native Americans was going to be useful. I mean, even in the medical context, it was crazy how they were administered. We would just give LSD to somebody and put them in a white hospital room, close the door with fluorescent lights, and they would flip out. <laughs> and it took some time to figure out oh, the setting is really important and uh, you're going to have a bad trip unless some attention is paid to set and setting. Not all drugs are responsive to set and setting. Ibuprofen affects your body the same no matter where you are and how you're feeling. But psychedelics are highly responsive to your own mindset and your relationship to your immediate surroundings. Not just the place, but the people around you. The idea that you would take a big hit of LSD and go to a concert or walk around the streets of a city. I mean, these are like not advisable, you know, at high dose or that you dose people without their permission. This was a very common practical joke in the 60s, you know, put it in the punch bowl. The Grateful Dead were famous for dosing anyone who came near their dressing room. Oh my God. (laughs) I think that's cruel. So anyway, had we paid attention to indigenous peoples and the way they use them, We would have known that you always have an elder around, whether you call him a shaman or a corandera or healer or medicine carrier. It's always done with clear intention and reverence, you know, and understanding this is a profound experience of another world and you don't enter that other world thoughtlessly or carelessly. And we failed to do that. I think that's changing. I think we're kind of learning that you need a certain container for such a powerful experience. And that usually is a guide who can be with you and keep your body safe while you're journeying. We're designing right now that container that will make the use of these drugs safe and also mitigate the real risks. I mean, there are real psychological risks. People have trips that are just terrifying. But the potential in treating things like trauma is real. And I mean, I've seen it. I've heard remarkable stories from people who were able to work out traumas, whether it's the trauma of sexual abuse or wrongful imprisonment or being in war with vets. It's very hopeful. I mean, we have phase three trials that are just about to come out on MDMA and somewhere like two thirds no longer qualified for PTSD after two or three experiences. This can happen on other psychedelics as well. But for all the promising research that has led to the current psychedelic renaissance, it's not all roses. Pollen is very aware of the dangers of overenthusiasm, which created the backlash in the 70s. There are potential problems that need to be carefully addressed, not just the personal dangers of reckless use, but societal issues like the impact on indigenous cultures, 
and the potential for therapeutic abuse. We could tell you all the great reasons you should support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, my name is Allie, and I joined Labyrinths Patreon because there's nowhere else that you can explore the ebbs and the flows of humanity with the kind of truth and grace that you can get with Labyrinths. There really isn't anywhere else you can get that. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. There was a moment in your new book where you were talking about how there's another way of approaching this, which is that trying to understand it shouldn't be the point. There's a quote from a young Navajo who chided this researcher, yes. Jerry Patchen. Like, that's the problem with you whites. You always want to know everything. We just experience yeah. <laughs> it. Are we doing it wrong by <laughs> trying to understand what our minds are doing while at the same time experiencing it? Well, I'm the kind of person like you who like likes to have a theory before they do anything. And it's just kind of my upbringing, my culture. I, I had trouble believing what was happening without a linear logical explanation of how it might be happening. And the first piece I wrote on psychedelics was in The New Yorker in like 2014. And after I described these amazing experiences people were having, I just felt obviously the next section is about what's going on in the brain. But no, you don't need to know what's going on in the brain to get the value. We know this because we've got 6,000 years of indigenous use of psychedelics. Now, they had their own theories, of course, that had to do with gods, and they had another cosmology. Our cosmology is science. And unless we can explain something in the vocabulary of science, it isn't real. And I fully understand how limited that is, but I'm also kind of a science geek and curious about it. So, but no, you don't need to. You can practice without a theory, and many people do very successfully. But for some people, knowing that there is a process going on and understanding what that process is and casting it in terms of brain science helps. Although the more I learn about brain science, the more I realize how little they know <laughs> and that these other ways of knowing deserve a lot more respect than we give them. And so I think it's temperament and culture. I think that also for the legitimacy of psychedelics in our society, it's very important to have a, a mechanism, right? That's what every grant-making body wants. They want to see a mechanism. And that's from a, literally a mechanistic worldview. So I don't think you've got to learn anything about neuroscience to take advantage of what these substances have to do. In the same way, you can practice meditation without really understanding the brain science of meditation, which is fascinating, and there's a lot of work going on. But the Buddha did fine without any of that theory, and that his approach to consciousness was held up really well. I wrote about nutrition for a very long time and food, and I was often struck by the fact that scientists would come up with this great breakthrough. Like uh, I remember reading that it's a really good idea to have olive oil on your tomatoes because uh, lycopene, which is the antioxidant in tomatoes, is soluble only in olive oil and you wouldn't absorb it if you didn't also have olive oil with it. It's like, well, you know, the Italian grandmothers figured that out <laughs> a very long time ago, that there was something about that combination that was maximally delicious and beneficial. So I'm a science writer. I'm a professor of science journalism, but I have a pretty healthy sense of the limitations of science and the fact that culture is an equally powerful way of knowing things. Culture being that which gets handed down and that which was really developed through trial and error. But there's genius in combinations of foods and in cuisines and that science is only beginning to recognize. And I think that's true with psychedelics too. I mean, that's why I think we need to pay attention to the indigenous use, learn what we can from it, and do it in a spirit of reciprocity too, because most of this knowledge, this whole new field, this new science of psychedelics is really built on the back of a body of indigenous knowledge, which people are getting much better about recognizing. They were uncomfortable about it for a while, but now everybody is talking about it. And we have a new psychedelic research center at Berkeley that I'm involved with that we just established in the last year. And this is in the Neuroscience Institute at Berkeley. We are figuring out ways 
to practice reciprocity and reparations around indigenous peoples. That's pretty unusual for a, a university, and we'll see how it goes. But we all feel a great debt to people who have figured all this out over thousands of years and haven't received the kind of recognition. To the contrary, they've been you know, laughed at for their approach. In terms of the indigenous people, though, it's also fear of appropriation. Native Americans see this psychedelic industry getting started, and some companies have their eyes on mescaline, and they have a history of things being stolen from them. And, you know, I was kind of personally offended at the lack of trust that some of these Native Americans showed to me when I would ask them, so why is this so valuable to your people? And they're like, why should I tell you? And I was like, yeah, of course, I'm another white discoverer coming along to get some value out of your experience. And I totally get it. And it was sort of a a moment of shiver. And I realized that, of course, he's seeing me as a category, right? As a white man and part of a long tradition of people who come to Indian culture and take what they want. And so I have to respect that. I mean, a lot of that piece was about learning to respect the interests of Native Americans who have in peyote found this amazing healing remedy. There are few populations quite as traumatized as the Native Americans, obviously African-Americans too, but they found this tool just at that moment where their culture was about to be annihilated in the 1880s and that it continues to offer them so much. And that's why I conclude, the thing that would upset me most is if this book creates a fad for peyote and people really want to find it. And that's why I wrote about San Pedro and and synthetic mescaline. It's like, if you're a white person and you have an interest in this, stay away from peyote. There's not enough of it for the Native Americans who want to use it. And it's so important to their culture and their healing that we should leave it alone or grow it in our gardens. But that turns out to be 15 years from seed to button. So not realistic for most of us. Aside from the potential negative impact on Native Americans, the psychedelic renaissance has led to some serious allegations, most prominently and recently by a man named Will Hall, who has accused two prominent psychedelic therapists of psychological and sexual abuse. There's even a recent podcast series that aims to expose the darkest corners of the psychedelic revolution. What should we make of these dark corners and claims of abuse? It's of great concern to me. I've been reading some of these accounts that are coming out, and I've, I've heard of others over the years. It's not an entirely new story. I think it's important to keep in mind that this is a problem throughout psychotherapy and not just a problem of psychedelic psychotherapy. There's a long history of therapists who took advantage of their patients and basically exploited the transference relationship, the fact that patients develop very strong feelings and attachments and dependence on their therapist sometimes, and this makes them vulnerable to an unethical therapist. I think these effects are perhaps exaggerated in the case of psychedelics. You think of something like MDMA, which enhances and accelerates transference, makes the person who takes the MDMA feel this instant bond of trust Mm -hmm. with the therapist. That's why it's so effective, but it's also a cause for concern and it makes the patient quite vulnerable. So it's definitely something that the community has to deal with. And there are challenges in dealing with it because we're talking by and large about an underground. How do you sanction people? Mm-hmm. In an above ground profession, there are rules and ethics and regulations. And when someone violates them, they get tossed out. Right. And that doesn't really happen in the underground. And that just points up one of the many problems with having these the psychedelic therapies still be illegal. Yeah. And I think you're right to point out that vulnerability is an inherent part of therapy. There is no healing if there's no vulnerability. And so, if anything, bringing these therapies above board is going to be the most effective way to protect people who are also going to benefit from these therapies. I think it's a very good point about the inherent vulnerability, that it is a strength and it's also a potential weakness. That's exactly why we need some sort of licensing regime of some kind uh, so that action can be taken. 
habits and that you develop some sort of means for accountability and redress if a therapist screws up. The other thing worth pointing out too, and this is not to cast any doubt over the claims that have been made by patients, is that underground therapists are also vulnerable themselves. Any patient can threaten them with exposure Mm. and shake them down. Mm. And that's happened too. The therapist is vulnerable to those charges because they're doing something illegal and they can be turned into the police. There's a potential for blackmail there too, or, or at least for a shakedown. So it all goes to this point that finally it's unsustainable to have a, an underground therapy community. And then in the long term, these kind of problems are just inevitable. I think that there should be absolutely no tolerance for this kind of behavior. And I think that we just need a way to adjudicate it. Aside from specific allegations of abuse in the underground psychedelic therapy community, there is the general claim that many proponents of psychedelics have been overenthusiastic, ignoring or downplaying the dangers of these substances. I would say the press has been, definitely. I think that there's a tendency when something is new and exciting and seems to be working to become, the term I used, speaking of the first wave of psychedelics in the 60s, was irrational exuberance. And I think we're having another period of irrational exuberance. Hmm. I've been writing journalism for a long time, and I teach journalism. And the tendency in journalism is to go too far in one direction and then go too far in the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the fact is that the press has been so positive about psychedelic therapy that at a certain point, the only story you can write is a negative story. Mm -hmm. And so now we may be entering into a, a backlash. And depending on how far it goes, it could be a very useful corrective mm -hmm. to this exuberance. Or it could do what happened in the 60s and choke off something that's incredibly promising and has the potential to help mm. a lot of people. So I hope that the press is a little more mature about this and doesn't yeah. take this so far and realize now it's time to completely discredit psychedelic therapy. Yeah. And it's also important to separate above ground clinical research going on in universities from this underground. Right. And that the problems with the underground should not, I don't think, create reason to doubt the good work that's being done in clinical trials. But of course, there is also good work being done in the underground, and it would be a shame if it all got tarred with the same brush. Yeah. You know, I've been actually predicting this for a long time, that there could be a backlash, and mm -hmm. I gave a couple of reasons for it. One was therapy abuse, mm -hmm. which I knew was out there, and I had heard rumors of it for years. And the other is uh, the fact that you're going to have some adverse events in these clinical mm. trials, especially when you give psilocybin to hundreds of people suffering from depression. Mm -hmm. uh, the risks of suicide or other adverse events is real, and that will mm. plug into a narrative that psychedelics are dangerous. Mm -hmm. So here we are. The, the pendulum has reached its outer point in enthusiasm for psychedelics, and now it's coming back. And mm. let's hope it, it settles at a sane place. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, <laughs> let's keep an eye on like a sane, yeah. rational approach to whatever it is that we're dealing yeah. with here. Well, as you well know, Amanda, the uh, media isn't very good at sane and rational. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what do tell, Mr. Pollan? <laughs> it sounds like this new discussion of abuse and the sort of dark side of the psychedelic therapy world is just further impetus to really embrace the legalization and regulation of this so yeah. that it can be done in an above-board, safe, and transparent way. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, there's some talk in the underground of forming some sort of professional certifying mm. organization that mm. would have the power to, you know, sanction people who made mistakes. Whether you can do that underground is is an open question. Like how would anyone know to reference that board if they didn't know it existed kind of thing? Right. It gets legally very complicated. But what it does tell me is that the psychedelic community is not simply gathering around and defending its bad actors, but that right. it is acutely aware of the problem and that it could hurt everybody hmm. and that people care and they, they want to protect patients. And they're trying to figure out a way in this very difficult situation they're in to do just that.
The potential for psychedelics to lead to individual transformation and individual harm is only part of this story. The other part is how they may transform society as a whole. At a certain point, you were writing about how societies condone mind-changing drugs that uphold society's status quo or rule of law and try to ban the ones that undermine it. And the opiate issue is actually an interesting sort of ironic <laughs> twist on that and how societies are not always good at recognizing the how and when certain kinds of psychoactive substances are being used or abused. And I was wondering what you could say particularly about this sort of shift in our culture. What does our choice of the psychoactive substances reveal about our fears and desires in the United States? And what do these recent decriminalization and legalization efforts reveal about that evolution, that shift in our fears and desires? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think we've kind of changed our understanding of psychedelics and how they can be used. They were very threatening in the 60s because young people were using them and the experience was causing them to question everything about their society. We had what we called then a generation gap. Very unusual where young people had completely divorced their culture or tried to from the adult culture. Whether we were talking about kinds of drugs they use, they disdained alcohol, but were using cannabis and psychedelics, the way they dressed, the way they spoke, there was a whole hippie language of terms that were basically designed to just confound parents and people in authority, sexual mores, I mean, just so many things. And a lot of people credited that exile from mainstream culture to psychedelics. And there was some truth to it. Young people were having a rite of passage, the acid trip that was landing them in a place that adults didn't understand very well and where they questioned authority. I mean, just think about the anti-war movement. In the history of humankind, when you send 18-year-old boys to war, they go. <laughs> they just go without question. And suddenly we had this situation in the Vietnam War where a significant percentage of young boys were saying, hell no. They were going to Canada or they were fighting the draft. And Nixon certainly thought that was due to the influence of psychedelics, which psychedelics do make you question everything. So the drugs were regarded as frightening to the powers that be. And that is why they cracked down on them as hard as they did. But over the course of the next couple decades, the people who, and this, this included therapists and doctors, who saw the value in psychedelics because they had been researched in the 50s, and they were being used even in the 60s in a therapeutic way, but that got lost. It just wasn't newsworthy. And the fact is, today, where our society struggles with a mental health crisis, very high rates of anxiety and depression and suicide, and even worse after the pandemic, that they're now seen as something that could help society. And that's why they're being embraced, because mental health treatment has so few tools at its disposal. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are the most common class of antidepressant drugs. They function by blocking the reuptake of the natural serotonin the brain circulates, causing the serotonin to linger in the synaptic gap longer than it normally would, decreasing feelings of anxiety and depression. But aside from not always working well, SSRIs have a lot of side effects, like sexual dysfunction, jaw clenching, and even increased risk of suicide. SSRIs, which are the main tool, people don't like taking them. They're addictive. They're very hard to get off. They have side effects people don't like, and they don't work that well. In studies, you know, they've only done about two or three percentage points better than placebo. So what society needs now is new tools to cope with depression, anxiety, anorexia, OCD, all the mental health problems that psychedelics appear to help with. And I think that more than anything, this is now a drug that it's the same chemical, but in this new context, it supports the smooth working of society more than disturbs it. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that'll continue to be the case, especially if this entheogenic use becomes more and more common, I don't know. 
it's very interesting to think about the cultural effects of widespread use of psychedelics again. Some people are very optimistic about that, that people's attitude toward nature changes. People feel much mm -hmm. more connected to nature after psilocybin. We have research suggesting this. Other people feel it just accentuates what's already there. And that if you gave psilocybin to Donald Trump or one of the Koch brothers, <laughs> you know, watch out. It's not going to take you where you want to go. I don't know the answer. I'm kind of agnostic on that. I think it'd be interesting to study cultural attitudes after psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Thus far, you know, you have a self-selected group of people willing to participate in the psychedelic experiment, and they're going to tend to be already well inclined toward nature, already hostile right. to authoritarianism. Well, you know, the way you talk about how caffeine through coffee and tea affected the development of rationalism and enlightenment thinking, and subsequently industrialization and capitalism, makes us wonder what sort of isms might emerge from the widespread adoption of something like psilocybin or other psychedelics. And how would you expect the effect on the way humans think in general would shape the way society ends up being structured? That's a really good question. I don't really have any satisfying answers. <laughs> well, the honest answer, which you're never supposed to use in any interview, is I don't know. <laughs> but that is the honest answer. It could lead to a spiritual awakening, right? I mean, you have so many people having big spiritual experiences, however they define them. But an experience of a world larger than themselves, it could lead to a diminution of egotism. Hmm. And that's a very difficult issue with psychedelics because many people report this sense of ego dissolution and that that is, if you surrender to it, is, can be one of the most positive aspects of it, that you feel less isolated, more connected to the world, to other people, mm -hmm. to nature. And in one of my experiences, I did have a pretty thorough experience of ego dissolution and it was a wonderful experience. On the other hand, you have people who take psychedelics and they become egomaniacs. They've seen the truth and they're proselytizing. The 60s history was, you know, a lot of egomaniacs came out of it. Mm -hmm. Everybody's very careful now and all the researchers are avoiding that kind of evangelical fervor about psychedelics. Right. But it's hard to know how many people have to have a psychedelic experience for a new form of consciousness to actually take hold. So I don't know. I'm skeptical it would all be good. You know, the Manson family was using LSD, and I've never read exactly how or to what purpose, but it was part of his hold over everybody. You know, so we need to look at those negative cases, too. So I'm kind of agnostic on that question. Sure. We've thought about this a lot because it seems to us that at least when it comes to psychedelics, obviously the set and setting is so important. They talk about set and setting for the individual and for the group, if it's a group setting. But also we've been thinking about set and setting in terms of culture. As a society, are we a society that embraces the transformative experiences of people who have experienced psychedelics and have embraced how they are integral to that person's identity and place in society? Or is it the type of thing where like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg does a macro dose and then goes back to work and, yeah, <laughs> and like mean, nothing changes? Honestly, and, like, like <laughs> while on psilocybin, I've often felt that the phone and the world of the phone is poison. <laughs> and that social media just feels so obviously like this head crab that is attached to all of our brains as we're walking around society. And it seems so obvious that we need to shuck it off. And I know that people like Jack Dorsey and Zuckerberg go to Burning Man and surely have access to these types of transformative experiences. But so far, it has not led them to hit delete on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's true. It's true. Why is that? You know, is it that they reemerge back into the world of Silicon Valley and the rest of the cultural setting is designed to reinforce things that make modern Western capitalism function rather than to embrace the transformations that are visible through that experience? I have trouble believing that Zuckerberg is doing macrodoses, but just based on his <laughs> affect and persona, I don't know. You know, there's a famous story of Steve Jobs extolling the importance mm -hmm. of LSD trips in his development, developing his aesthetic and his ability to think in a very out-of-the-box kind of way. And at one point he said that had Bill Gates taken LSD, Windows would have been a much better product. And, uh, <laughs> and then Gates responded by saying, but I did, but I did. It was like so surprising. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, hmm. you know, I think it has different effects on different people. I mean, it's incredibly variable what happens. And if Zuckerberg went into it thinking, I'm going to use psychedelics to figure out how I can make even more money or invent the next social network, that might turn out to be the essence of his trip. I think the use of psychedelics in Silicon Valley is, first of all, there is a lot of interest in psychedelics there. And a lot of people are microdosing, which you shouldn't expect to have any kind of profound effect on anyone. And they're doing it for increased productivity, for increased creativity, not to change the world. It's part of that Silicon Valley optimization of the self, right? The same reason, you know, people do intermittent fasting and take all sorts of supplements. And there's this whole ethos that we can improve on the human body and we can use technology to do it. So that's the set, right? And it's a different one than most people are using it for. But I think there is potential, and I think we should study this, that psychedelics could contribute to creativity. It's the opposite of coffee in a way, if you put them on a spectrum, whereas coffee kind of fosters linear thinking and what's sometimes called spotlight consciousness, the ability to block out lots of things and focus on one thing that children are not very good at and that adults get very good at. So what psychedelics appear to do is soften spotlight consciousness and lead to more lantern consciousness, which is where you're taking in information from all sides all at once, which doesn't lead to doing well on SATs, but it does often lead to thinking in different ways, divergent thinking, thinking outside the box. There's been some good neuroscience done on psychedelic experience and fMRIs and maps of brain connection. And it really does temporarily rewire your brain. And the brain in normal consciousness is very hierarchical. And there is this network riding over the top. It's kind of a regulatory network called the default mode network. And it connects parts of your brain and the frontal cortex, which have to do with executive function and things like that, to the posterior cingulate cortex, which is very much involved in generating the narrative of who you are. That story is very important. You don't have an identity without a sense of what you did before and what you hope to do in the future. And so that sense of self is generated there. And then it's also connected to the older, deeper areas like the hippocampus where memory and emotion is centered. And most brain networks, whether you're talking about the visual cortex or the movement centers or whatever, pass through this hub and get their orders from the default mode network. Under the influence of high-dose psychedelics, the default mode network gets quieted. Mm. And suddenly, all these brain networks that don't ordinarily communicate directly with one another suddenly are talking to each other. And so you might have the visual cortex mm. talking to the auditory cortex, and suddenly you're seeing music. The ego of the self, whatever appears to be generated in the default mode network, is a real reinforcer of habits, habits of thought and narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves, such as, you know, I'm worthless, unworthy of love, or I can't get through the day without a drink or a cigarette, or my work is shit. These kind of destructive narratives. I mean, think of the narratives in the mind of somebody with an eating disorder or OCD. And those are enforced by the ego, and they trap us in loops of rumination. Turn that all off for a period of time. You have freed the person from that oppression and new connections form. And we know that learning in the brain is a matter of connections and they get reinforced the more you think about them and the more you exercise them. So psychedelics seem to be a very good tool for breaking habits of thought and behavior. As one researcher, Robin Carhart-Harris said, shaking the snow globe or the, the image I love came from a postdoc in his lab, a Dutchman who said, think of the mind as a hill, a snowy hill, and everyone's going down in sleds. And over time, you get these deep grooves. And it's very hard to go down the hill without falling into one of those grooves. Well, psychedelics is a fresh snowfall that fills all the grooves, and it allows you to go down the hill in a new pattern. And I thought that's a beautiful metaphor. And I think there's some truth to it. So I think the value is and this is one of the reasons I think that psychedelics may be more valuable as you get older, when you get more stuck in your habits of thought and behavior and less apt to experiment, that it kind of loosens the grip of those patterns and allows people to form new patterns. And I think that that's very powerful. We're learning so much about how powerfully habit influences us and limits us. Yeah. 
I mean, habits have their uses, right? They're shorthands. They keep you from having to run a complex calculation every time. You know what to do in every situation. You have an algorithm that kicks in. And we all develop these, and they help us get through life. But they also deaden us to life because we're immediately going to, I'm going to run that program. Right. I'm having a fight with my spouse. I know the program, and I run it again, rather than like, well, maybe I can approach this in a whole new way. So I think that's a big part of their power. And this relief from the oppression of the default mode network might be central to it. But there's lots more research that needs to be done. We're really just beginning to understand what's going on in the brain. It's one of the most exciting areas in neuroscience. It's suddenly safe to study this and take it seriously. And, and I talk to neuroscientists, very prominent ones who've established themselves in other fields, and they're very eager to work with this tool and see what it might have to teach us about consciousness. Indeed, the neuroscience underpins much of the recent psychedelic renaissance. Without audacious and talented researchers finding ways to actually study these substances, despite their illegality and cultural baggage, we likely wouldn't even be making this podcast. So that's where we're headed next, to speak to Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris, a neuroscientist who's done pioneering work with psilocybin and LSD at Imperial College London and who is now a professor of neurology and psychiatry and the director of the psychedelics division at the University of California, San Francisco. So stay tuned for part two of our mini-series. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And please consider giving Labyrinths a five-star review and spread the word on social media. Your word of mouth keeps this podcast alive. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Hello, listener. This episode of Labyrinths could be ad-free, but that requires exclusive access. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become a monthly Patreon subscriber which will grant you access to top-secret patron-only content. This podcast will self-destruct without your support. Was that too cheesy? Who doesn't like cheese? Visit patreon.com slash Robinson.